0: There's companies that are still operating as if it's the year 2005. And there are companies that are operating like it's 2021. And and there's just a a large range of companies that are evolving at different speeds.
1: Workforce transformation. A future of work where individuals are owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees, on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I'm your host, Asya Haq, Vice President of Talent Marketing at Theo Partners. Today I'll be speaking with Paul Estes, author of The Gig Mindset. Paul is dedicated to creating opportunity for everyone through a thoughtful marriage of technology and on-demand expert talent. He has held leadership roles at Dell, Amazon, and Microsoft. Still keeping an active gig mindset of his own, he has recently joined Mural as its first chief community officer. Today, we will speak to Paul about how workers and organizations are transforming themselves using gig economy strategies, as well as how organizations can harness the power of their own communities of on-demand experts to help create customer-centric solutions and solve challenges. Paul, welcoming you to the State of Independence podcast. So excited to have you here.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've been looking forward to it for a long time.
1: One of the things that I love to do as I start these conversations for State of Independence is we're at the 10th year of studying independent work in America at MBO as a company. And every time I bring a guest on, I'll ask them the question, where were you 10 years ago today? And how does it connect to your purpose today?
0: Wow, 10 years ago, today would have been 2011. I was
1: at Microsoft, probably
0: my third year at Microsoft working in the Xbox division doing business development. And how does it connect to my work today? You know, my journey has been, and I documented it, of course, in my book, you know, I was a third generation company man. And I look back On the good and the bad of my time in corporate america but it was a necessary and very informative amazing time like it's i was super fortunate and privileged to be able to work at some amazing companies dell amazon and and microsoft and learn things that will serve me for the rest of my professional life and and hopefully help me guide my children as they enter into the professional world in, in a number of years and so that's where i was 10 years ago
1: Certainly since then, having followed your journey as an influencer in the gig economy, I know you've done a lot of very interesting things. And the first thing I want to touch on briefly is just the fact that you now have published some of your expertise into a new book called The Gig Mindset. And you have a pretty unique approach with this book, right? You talk about a concept called Tide. Tell our audience about it. Well, the first thing I
0: want to tell you is how the book was written. I love it is, is is life imitating art. And so I, yeah, I think there's an interesting story of, I had this idea of a book in my head. And so the first thing I did is I, you know, I went down, I got my computer, I put it in the basement, I cleared everything up and I'm like, I'm going to write a book. So I searched, you know, a couple searches and stuff. And then I stared at the blank page. And then after an hour, I was like deep into Facebook or something. And like, I, you know, wasn't going to write a book. And then I hired a, a ghostwriter, you know, to help me form it and stuff. And then I it, and I'm like, man, this just doesn't sound like the ghostwriter was great. Like a, they were a, a freelance professional. And then I ran into a company called Scribe Media, which actually used the Tide model to produce the book. And so what they did was they taskified it. So they broke the book down into its parts. You had you know, an architect who helped structure the book. You have an editor who helped record and transcribe. You had an editor who edited the book. Then you moved into a marketing department that helped get it up on Amazon. And then you had another part of the marketing department that did different things. And The different parts of the book were taskified. That's the T of the time. The second thing is they identified the right expertise to apply to the right problem and so the, the amazing thing that i found out when i was working with freelancers and i'm i'm working with a, a machine learning expert right now on a project that we're doing when you find the right person who has the right expertise to solve your problem it's amazing i worked at a company for a long time and you you'd go to like whoever was around or working and stuff and they say oh yeah i kind of did this and maybe i read up on this but when you're able to find somebody who like is passionate about that Task that they know. We call it machine learning. Call it editing a book. Call it publishing a book. And so you identify the right person. The, the third part in the Tide model is delegate, and that is the hardest thing for a lot of people to do. You know, I have a lot of virtual assistants that help me uh, do tons of things. I've written a, a number of different articles that listed, in fact, in the book, I have a hundred things that you could go today and delegate. But a lot of people have a hard time delegating tasks, right? And and I had to train myself to write things down to say, Hey, this is exact. This is the outcome that I'm trying to get to, to give them context. These are the ways I might approach it. Please feel free to do it differently, but but you have to write things down and think things through before a lot of us now go into meetings and we just start talking, you know, and here you have to like write things down because this isn't a person that has shared context or shared culture. And so there is some training. Now, once you master that, man, any task, whether it's machine learning or hey, can you call somebody to help me um, turn on my sprinkler system for like, all those things can be uh, delegated. And, And the E of TIDE is evolve. And I think, you know, there's this big thing about continuous learning or growth mindset. and It sounds great, sounds fantastic, until you put it into practice and realize, in my journey in corporate America, there was never a time I sat down with a, a manager or a boss of mine and they said, Hey, you know, I know you failed, but, but that's okay. You're still going to get promoted or raised or something like that. And so I think there's this disconnect when we tell people to experiment, we tell people to fail and we tell people to learn from that. And then we go into performance reviews or whatever your case may be. And it's like, well, did you deliver these things? It's was like, no, I experimented and I failed, but I learned this, but man, next quarter, That failure and that learning is going to leapfrog, you know, this thing. And so, you know, I often talk to a lot of managers saying, look, you really do have to understand and defend failure and learn from failure. If you don't learn from failure, that's an issue. (laughs) But like, you know, you have to then go to your boss and say, hey, you know what? I'm actually advocating for this employee to get, you know, in the right stack rank or whatever your performance thing is, because they took a risk. And we're going to reward that risk. And and I, I don't I, even today. I think a lot of managers will go hand out Carol Dweck's book, you know, the growth mindset. And then when it comes to somebody failing, I say, "Oh well, no, Jane failed, and so you know Susan's going to get a, a better review." Like it, it it doesn't it doesn't jive. And so there's some some learning I think people need to do.
1: I fully buy into that. I think what's profound about what you're saying is you know, somebody could think of that as failure, you're framing it as evolution. And I think that's really powerful. I believe the structure that you've laid out, not only do I see it as being really relevant to the broader topic of workforce transformation, as more work is chunked And delivered by managers to outside experts. We know that's a a train that left the station a very long time ago, especially where you sit in the state of Washington and the tech industry. That is the reality, right? Most workers at most of our, I guess, corporations that have created the greatest value in the U.S. economy consist of primarily an extended workforce and a smaller fixed workforce Steve King and I have talked about this on the State of Independence podcast. He's an expert in this space, the concept of the barbell economy, you know, an economy where now you have very large companies creating and designing work and work outcomes that they want to achieve, kind of a skinny middle, not so many small com- mid-sized companies anymore like there used to be in times past, and then a very large bell on the other side, which is the experts out there, the person you described that is the person that understands AI or presentation design or UX or, you know, whatever skill slash expertise you want to talk about. So I'm very much in agreement with what you're saying. And I think the challenge becomes, how do we evolve the corporation? How do we help them on this journey of workforce transformation? where it is more comfortable to talk about work outcomes and different kinds of work contributors than it is to talk about traditional talent management and the employee. You know, is the age of the employee kind of going to change? Not that it's over, but...
0: Well, look, change is one thing that is constant. I think what's happening now is that the rate of change is accelerating. Having spent some time at Amazon, look, there's a lot of challenges about Amazon. So I'm not going to go into that, but I think there's three things that are relevant. Number one is they're focused on the outcome and they work backwards from the outcome. That's just in their DNA. And so when I think of independent work or working with freelancers, we start with outcomes and then we work backwards and then we apply the right people, the right process and stuff to that outcome. And and so you're starting to see more and more companies become responsible for the outcome. Not, hey, I just have a piece of software and hey, good luck with it. And I have a help and learning center. And I no, I'm gonna understand the outcome. And if I need to apply people or processes or whatever you need to that outcome. And so Amazon is very outcome focused. As a customer, you feel it. When I work there, it's ingrained in what they do. And they have a number of different freelance or gig economy strategies in place, whether it's Mechanical Turk. They have Amazon IQ so if you're a if you're an AWS customer you can press a button and get an expert you know they have Flex delivery I mean they that idea of I will put you know independent workers in my process focused on the outcome is just in their DNA the, the other thing that I that is fascinating that they're doing that I don't think enough companies have embraced yet is they take cost centers and turn them into revenue opportunities. And so if you just go look at their P&L, every one of their cost centers, they've turned into a revenue opportunity. In fact, AWS was born from the fact that they had a massive cloud infrastructure that sold people books and other things. And they turned that into a massive business. They're doing that with their logistics. They're doing that. Just across the board. And so when you dissect them as a company, you start to see the brilliance of how they are agile in utilizing independent labor and also turning cost centers and that scale into revenue opportunities. And so I think like there's, you know, I I struggle. You said something at the beginning with the, the future of work. It's the current, like there is no future of work. It's here. It's just not evenly distributed. There's companies that are still operating as if it's the year 2005, and there are companies that are operating like it's 2021, and, there, and there's just a, a large range of companies that are you know, evolving at different speeds. And so it's the rate of change, I think, that is different that I don't know that enough people fully understand.
1: So one of the things that I've been really fascinated with is how you've been able to frame up the connection between the software-driven economy, scalable software, and the need for in-demand experts. And you've kind of put a thesis out into the market about the linkage between SaaS success and the role of humans. Really fascinating stuff. You make this point in a recent article that more than 80% of new product features are never used. And you sort of instead say, Let's talk about humans on demand. Tell us more about that. I don't want to give it away. I want to kind of have you share your point of view here with our audience.
0: Look, it's always been interesting to me as I've been in technology on how features are prioritized and how companies digitally listen. And so when I was at Microsoft, we went on this journey of does the company actually know what people are trying to do with the software? I mean, digitally, I, you know, we did focus groups and, and marketing teams talk to people. And ag- anecdotally, we have, you know, community members and stuff. But do we know whether it's jobs to be done or intent or whatever uh, methodology? Do you actually know? And, and you look at a ton of data sources and companies in general don't have those insights. They generally don't know the outcome that people are trying to accomplish with the software at scale and digitally. And so, you know, when we started to look at different companies that had on-demand expertise, whether it was somebody helping, you know, somebody do an Excel problem or something, people were talking to those experts in very intent-based ways because they were trying to accomplish something. They may be trying to accomplish I'm, try- I'm a salesperson trying to, you know, figure out my attainment goals so I can get paid more. Well, that's an intent um, that we wouldn't have otherwise uh, gathered. And so, you know, earlier we were talking about companies focusing on outcomes, right? And, and how Amazon is focused on the outcome and works backwards. Right. Well, when you start allowing and integrating people into the software process, you really start listening in a different way. You start with the question of how can I help? And then... You execute help. And and that won't be done by AI. <laughs> that really, the AI is not going to say, how can I help? And then there's a chat bot that somehow figures out what, like, it's humans. And so we're starting to see more and more of it. You know, one of the examples I talk about in the article is Intuit in taxes. It's tax season. So it's a very timely topic. I can go into TurboTax today and press a button and get a certified CPA to help answer my tax questions. I can go into QuickBooks today and press a button and get an accountant or a bookkeeper to help me do my small business stuff. So they have integrated experts from their community who are certified into the software process. My Nike app, I now have Nike experts, I I run a bunch and so I was getting some new shoes and I was in the app looking and they said, hey, do you need help? And an expert from their community, this wasn't a Nike employee, from their community showed up and it's like, yeah, I'm a runner too and and helped me do that. Uh, There's a article that I highly recommend people read, just type in Stitch Fix Algorithm Tour. And if you look at that company and how they they're onboarding their style shuffler that, you know, where you pick whether you like your clothes and stuff and how they digital listen and then where they put the human expert in the process is magical. Both of my daughters who were seven and six just signed up for Stitch Fix. And every time they go to the, the style shuffler and they, they enjoy it. It's it's a fun thing they do. And they feel like they have a relationship with the company so that every time they check out, we, every three months they get a, a, a stitch fix and they're like, oh, I have a stylist. They tell their friends, well, I, I've got a stylist. And and then they, they feel like they're talking to their stylist when they provide feedback and stuff. And so you're starting to see more companies apply independent workers into the process. And so we're in this really interesting space where there's a, an overlap between this idea of customer success. Like if you have millions of customers, how yeah. do you provide customer success? Well, you're not going to go hire 500,000 customer success managers. Mm-hmm. You have this growing trend of community. Every company now is Hey, our community is important. I agree. I'm a chief community officer. And then you have the on-demand economy, this expectation that, look, I'm not going to go search Google and try to figure out 10 features so I can accomplish my task. I just want somebody to help me. And our expectations from a consumer perspective, especially during the pandemic, are changing. And so you have these trends happening uh, in technology, and I think a lot of companies are starting to to realize them and put them into their operations.
1: So we've been at it with the online talent marketplace, the online workspace for decades now, right? So even I had a startup in that space 20 years ago, trying to solve problems that are still being solved today in real time. The market isn't as big as it should be. And maybe what you just said is the reason that that market hasn't exploded to the extent that it should have. Did we rely too much on self-serve, you know, let's call it like more sophisticated databases of talent, you know, better, richer profiles, more self-service to the extent that we haven't pivoted enough to really scaling this new new way of acquiring work? Like, what's the magic in the middle that is going to grow this market?
0: Yeah, so I, I have a very unique view. Like, look, the online marketplaces are not profitable. It's just not like, you just look, look at the deliver, like even though the Deliveroo IPO, that there's a lot of reasons that that was a bad IPO. But one of it is you just look at the business and it's they're not profitable businesses. I, I think the second thing you brought up, which is true is I don't want to go to a website and search through a bunch of things and try to judge people based on, like, that's just a lot of work. Right. And so I think what you're going to find and the thing that I'm you know, working on uh, at Mural and, and you know, we, we launched a product at Microsoft called Microsoft Experts, which put PowerPoint experts available uh, to people, um, is that you'll find that companies will start to take members of their community that are passionate, that know the product better than anyone in the company. And they'll connect those people with customers or members that need those skills. If you do that, it's already a curated group of people. It's your community. but they, they are fans of your product. They're power users of your product. And they're going to connect with people that are your customers who need that help. And so if in that strategy, you take out all of the, the middlemen and all of the friction that goes into trying to search for the right person, like AWS IQ those are people that are certified in AWS. Mm -hmm. I don't have to go and search and stuff, but I generally know that Amazon has a certification program that anybody I select will probably be able to do, you know, get into my cloud instance and help boot me up. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go and search a bunch of resumes and do that stuff. And so I think forward-looking companies will start to, you know, provide value to their community. I, I believe one of the metrics you you know, you'll look at is how much money have I made my community? You know, how much economic opportunity as a SaaS company have I given to the community? And some companies will look at it and say it's a profit center. Some companies will just say, hey, look, my core business is selling my software or my service. Part of doing that is making sure that that I have a vibrant community. That community wants economic opportunity. And I have customers that need their help. And so you'll create systems that enable that. And and I I shared with you the Intuit example, the Stitch Fix. I mean, there's tons of companies. I always say it's it's kind of like when you buy a new car, you think you're the only person that has that car. But then when you get it, you're like, man, everybody's got my car. Like you start seeing these people in software everywhere you go. And Ancestry.com, I was doing some work with my mom on understanding our lineage. and, And they have... Ancestry experts, you can press a button and and somebody who's an expert at Lineage will will assist you. And and so anyway, there's tons of examples, whether it's cloud or whether it's Grammarly or whether it's taxes. I mean, there's, I I think I've categorized probably 40 different companies that are, you're a click away from an expert in their community that's passionate about their product uh, that you can get in touch with. And so that's a very different approach than the traditional marketplaces where I like look at resumes or profiles or star ratings and stuff.
1: Yeah, I think you're really on to something with this insight. And it's really timely that you've put this out as sort of the next thing that you want to talk about. Because it's, to your point, if you're investing in growth of your business, whether or not it's a software-based business – this is a piece of how you're going to scale because you talked about that example of traditional customer success models and just how expensive they can become and sort of how not authentic, because let's be honest, right? Somebody who loves your product and is a fan is going to be way better at talking about your product than somebody who just did well in sales, you know, and happens to have been hired by you through, like you said, a recruiter and a resume. So it also just makes intuitive sense. And we certainly see it in our community, I work with a group of very successful high-end consultants we've been experimenting with and really scaling a membership model called MBO Advantage. And it's it's not for everyone, it's for a subset of our community. But what you described as a sort of human middleware, we're starting to see that. So, So so we initially thought we were serving them as you know, just successful independents who needed help with scaling and growing their back office and their business. And it turned around and they became buyers. Like they come to us looking for what they need to grow their firms in terms of talent. And then also they become a connection between our large enterprise clients and our broader marketplace, because MBO does have a marketplace of enterprise-grade talent, something we've really never surfaced in a big way, but it's something that we've acquired. And they're a market maker for us because they can understand and translate between the large enterprise requirement and then the talent that's in our pool in a way that's often far more efficient because they are experts, right? And their unique skill. It's not Oracle, it's some subset of Oracle that has to do with a very specific transformation. You are doing something at Mural that's really interesting because you kind of backtracked on your own personal career as a successful independent and gig worker And reluctantly, but in a pretty excited way, have gone to Mural as a chief community officer. And I'd love to hear more about that.
0: There was an association that I was a part of, and we used Mural. And I remember this moment where... Somebody was talking and everybody was collaborating. The mural board was lit up. Like people were like, as somebody was talking, they were contributing thoughts. And like, it was this really interesting collaboration that I'd never experienced before in my life. My entire career had been spent with somebody putting a PowerPoint through a projector on a screen, a bunch of executives sitting there and them saying, hey, I've got to hurry up because I have a lot of content. And then some precision questioning, and then we got out of the room and maybe there was a follow-up. And so when I saw this, it was a complete change in how, like, everybody on this call around the world, there were about 30 people on the call, everybody was contributing. Every voice was heard. Every idea was put on the table. And I thought that was pretty powerful. I had interviewed uh, Mariano Uh, who's the CEO of Mural, on a podcast. And we ended up after the podcast talking for a couple of hours about this idea of connecting community with customers and just sort of getting out of the way, saying, hey, Mr. Customer, like, how can I help? And, And stopping there. I think a lot of companies say, oh, here's what help looks like. Let me give you this Coursera course, or let me give you all of this stuff. And the approach that I have is how can I help you define how I can help. And then I go and I figure out and make sure that I have all the tools in the toolkit to provide the help you need so that you can be successful. And so the idea of community, similar to what you were talking about, connecting in a very authentic way with customers and, and getting out of the way, you know, creating the systems and, and the platforms and everything you need to allow that authentic connection with people that are Passionate about your product. Like it's amazing. Being a part of Mural is just an amazing experience. I, I feel honored to be a, a part of the team because there's so many people that are passionate about the promise and what the tool itself can do. And so the idea that we can enable that community to be in direct contact with some of the largest enterprises in the world, and those enterprises, to your point, can get access to some of the best facilitators of. You know, very specific methods that can help them solve some of the, the hardest problems uh, is impressive. We actually had a, a session the other day with one of the vaccine makers and they needed somebody to facilitate. They were trying to figure out how to scale their operations and, and do a bunch of stuff. And we had a member of our community who has a TED talk with over well over a million views and is a thought leader in visual communication and problem solving. And we were able to connect them on demand in a day and it was powerful and so i see that
1: time and time again and so that's
0: the reason i've been on this journey
1: i just really see the opportunity as you describe mural and their community of on-demand experts and i'm sure you've thought about this it's a wonderful way to evangelize your product right because when you put it out into a community of independent business owners We know from State of Independence that we are now more than 40 million strong for independent workers. When they go out and talk to their customers and talk about products and gather ideas, if they're using your tool, they effectively become an evangelist where the manager that they're pitching to or the director that they're pitching to, the business owner that they're pitching to is saying, that's neat. How did you how did you do that? Like how did you write down those ideas or wow, how did you summarize so well? You know, and we we've seen that value of sort of what we call like the graphic recording of ideation and innovation as being a very very powerful asset. So I see a bright future for you connecting with the independent workforce not just as your community and fan base, but also more broadly as a sales channel. So along the lines of experts, you were at Microsoft when the first sort of freelance gig, I guess, business model started to be born inside that company. And you since then have moved on and done a lot of interesting things. But there's been some pretty interesting changes within the ecosystem, the acquisition of LinkedIn and LinkedIn's recent announcement, which we still don't know exactly what this is going to look like, but something's coming, right, this fall that has to do with experts and searching for talent and, and, and somehow combines probably the things that have been learned along the way from a lot of different online talent marketplaces what's your thought here is it, is it, do you have a perspective to share are you also waiting you know to see what's revealed
0: there's a lot of promise I think it's a great professional platform and, and it's a you know a great community there's two interesting things I think of when I think of LinkedIn one is I have one profile on LinkedIn. My professional profile. And so it really doesn't capture the side hustles or the other parts of my professional identity. There are people that are independent workers. And so on their job experience, it'll say, you know, independent worker at whatever the name of their company is or freelancer or something like that. There's a lot of those people on the platform. And I think, you know, they could create a product for that audience. Um, And it could be pretty powerful. It will be interesting to see if they handle payments. I think where it gets problematic is that, hey, let's say I work at big company, Acme company, Mm -hmm. and I happen to be an artificial intelligence or a, a, a coder or something, and I want to work as a side hustle. Well, how do I do that? Right. How do I put how do I hang my shingle saying, hey, look, I work nine, nine to five here, but at night, man, I love to do side projects. And so how you handle the the duality of I am a W-2 employee that works at big company. Oh, and by the way, I have a side hustle is interesting because I don't think there's a lot of companies and HR departments that are progressive, have progressed enough to say, oh, that's totally cool. Like you work for us and at night you do that. Like you know your side hustle it helps you with you know your job and and so i think there's a lot of policy work that needs to be understood i think the the other challenge that the that they may face is look they're in the business of selling our information to staffing companies right they make a lot of money to staffing companies saying hey look we help people find jobs we have this thing if you're a recruiter you can look at our database and and find some of the the right people it's a very powerful Product offering, but when you go direct, meaning go direct to company from LinkedIn, the number one people that you're disrupting is a traditional staffing model, and so you have this this channel conflict. That'll be interesting to see how uh, they navigate and how the staffing companies react if they go big. You know, Amazon, you know, the they go and disrupt themselves and they go big. They don't go half in. Like, it's like when the Adobe moved to the subscription model. They didn't say, oh, well, we're kind of tinkering with this skew. That they, they went all in. They said, hey, we're now a subscription model company. Welcome to the new world. Uh, so It'll be interesting to see if it's an experiment or it's a, hey, we understand that this change is happening and it's a, a full, fully baked, fully resourced product that they go in. And I think that'll be the interesting uh, thing
1: this fall. This has been a great conversation. I feel like we can. Could- going. I see a lot of potential opportunity, you know, as you sort of start to think about building out your expert or your fan community on demand. So Paul, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. That was Paul Estes, an unstoppable advocate for the talent economy and author of The Gig Mindset. For more of MBO's insights on the future of work, visit MBOPartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.